I did want to take uh, the chance being with all of you uh, to just kind of give you a brief update on, uh, on the plans of uh, my family moving to Thailand as missionaries uh, to uh, work there with the Thai church to see uh, churches planted, disciples made, Jesus known, called upon uh, in places where he's never been named. Uh, we are continuing to plan and move forward, and God has uh, been really gracious to us and helped us and encouraged us. Of course, there's a lot of difficulties that come with it, uh, but those are mostly emotional things, uh, things to leave, say goodbye to, um, let go of, things like that, and, uh, and of course, the difficulties of going not just away from something, but towards something. Uh, and, and by all accounts, uh, friends that we've made so far who are already uh, working in different cultures, uh, these kind of cross-cultural church planting efforts, uh, the spiritual warfare is really intense, and so we're, you know, readying ourselves and, and, uh, and trying to be really prepared for that. But the Lord's been really gracious and encouraged us, so we're, we are encouraged by that. Uh, in fact, um, even uh, just uh, this morning, we uh, got delivery of a passport for Hudson, and uh, he's looking super cool, world traveler, right? Uh, so that was an exciting step. We're waiting on the rest of the kids' passports, but uh, just another thing kind of coming in the mail or showing up in our lives that reminds us that we really are going to do it, <laughs> and uh, it feels kind of crazy and far off at times, and then other times, you know, a passport shows up in the mail, and, uh, and it's good, but uh, we're excited in all the ways that you want to be excited and uh, sober-minded in all those ways, I think, uh, growing in those things, but appreciate all of your support, uh, your prayers, uh, your encouragement. Uh, Y'all have been really uh, great family for us in the midst of all this transition and everything. Um, just on a, another practical thing, uh, we have, uh, the Lord's provided for all of our one-time costs uh, at this point for us to be able to actually just move to Thailand. Uh, I, I'm not like a, I'm not a dollars and cents guy. I'm not the real practical planner administrative kind of guy. So I was shocked to find out how expensive it is to move to the other side of the planet. It's just expensive, uh, but the Lord has provided for all of those one-time costs. Praise Him. Uh, he's been really good in that, and, and we're about a third of the way with like the monthly kind of uh, commitments and support for what we need to just live a sustainable life there. Um, and when I say sustainable, I don't mean like two Bentleys, okay, and a mansion for hospitality's sake or something like that. I really mean like just living there, uh, living among Thai people, and having a sustainable life so that our presence there can be long-term. We're about a third of the way towards meeting that monthly goal. So if you would just join us in uh, praying for God to do what He wants to do, when He wants to do it, how He wants to do it, through whomever He wants to do it, uh, that's what we're looking for. That's our goal. And we try to put some kind of parameters and ideas to what that might be but ultimately, we know God's going to do His thing how He wants, when He wants, and uh, that's what we want. So, 
thanks for uh, indulging that update. So we will, uh, we're going to continue now a new series we just started last week, uh, Word of Life. We're just going to hear directly from Jesus things that he taught in the Gospels. We started last week with kind of the apex of Jesus' teaching on himself, how he revealed himself during his earthly ministry that he said, uh, before Abraham was, I am. You remember if you were here last week, he didn't just say I am, but he said, I am, I am. In the Greek translation of what Jesus said in Aramaic, it was ego imi, I am, I am. And he was quoting what God from a burning bush had said to Moses, I am who I am. And all of Jesus' listeners, especially those Pharisees who were the teachers of the law, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying, they knew who he was quoting, and that he was identifying himself as God who pre-existed Moses, pre-existed Abraham, pre-existed the creation of the world because he is the creator of the world. So no small claim that Jesus made about himself. And we started there because we wanted to establish who Jesus says he is and then begin to learn from him as creator of the universe, the one who owns everything, to whom everything belongs, and to whom all of our allegiance and submission and obedience belongs. And having that in our minds, in our hearts, knowing who this is that we are seeking to learn from, the one who is truth, uh, let's go to the scriptures. So this is Matthew chapter 5, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, we're going to read uh, the first 16 verses of this chapter. And then, uh, just like we normally do, I'll read this out loud and then we'll stop and pray for some help here. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in the first verse. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Let's pray. God, we are gathered here this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus. We all assume that, and of course to say that, Lord, we realize is a little bit uh, formulaic in our day. But Lord, please, would you have us truly be gathered here in Jesus' name, for his name, because of his name, to exalt his name, to know his name. We're seeking to be taught by Jesus, not by me, Lord, by you. Would you please draw near to us, humble us, open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts so that we can learn from you, sit at your feet and learn from you. Holy Spirit, we call on you. We realize that it's your work to lead us into all the truth, everything that Jesus taught, all that he is, all that he has done for us all of the truth that's embodied in him. You've come and filled us so that you would teach us all of these things about him. And we ask you to do that ministry here this morning. As we learn a passage that is so much about character, Lord, I confess that I'm lacking Please help us all. Please grow and transform us all so that we would reflect the image of Christ more purely, more faithfully, more joyfully, more obediently than we ever have before. Let us not leave this place the same as we came in here. And even those of us who have the hardest of hearts this morning, would you melt us? Melt our resistance. Melt our rebellion. Our waywardness. Melt our fear, Lord. Let us come to you in Christ with full assurance that his blood covers all of our sin and makes us able to approach you with freedom, with confidence that we are accepted. For those in the room this morning who don't know you, Lord, who don't have faith in Christ as of this moment, I ask if you would please meet with them, show yourself to them, draw them to yourself and save them. Show them who Jesus is this morning, please, Lord, and show him to be all-satisfying and worthy of our lives. We ask for these things truly, hopefully, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay.
So, obviously, uh, a very familiar passage. Um, I know that it's familiar because uh, it is famous, as Jesus' teachings go, it begins his Sermon on the Mount. He goes up on this mountain, and for chapters 5, 6, and 7, of course, he wasn't standing on the mountainside saying, chapter 5, verse 1. But for these three chapters, we see this sermon from Jesus where he's gathered not only with disciples, but also with crowds. You notice there in the very beginning, it says that Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. That's not the same people. There's disciples here, and there are crowds here. The crowds, generally in the New Testament, especially when it talks about Jesus and his ministry as he was going through uh, to, uh, around Palestine preaching, making disciples, there were crowds that would follow him because he did spectacular things. He taught with authority like nobody they'd ever heard teach before. He seemed to have insight about the Old Testament scriptures that they had never heard before. He was... Um, contradicting the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious rulers and leaders of the Jewish people. He was uh, sometimes in very heated debates with them to the point that they would pick up stones to kill him, the point that they would try to shove him off of cliffs. They would try to seize him, to tear him apart, so angered by his teaching and the truth that he was revealing about God and how that exposed their hypocrisy. They came because he did miracles because there were, there were people with shriveled hands that suddenly would extend whole hands. There were people who had been blind from birth that suddenly could see. There were people who had been unable to walk. They were uh, lame in their legs, and suddenly their legs were made strong and whole and straight, and they would leap for joy, dancing and praising God. So you could imagine why crowds would be attracted. Pretty amazing show, Right? But, of course, Jesus was so much more than a show. He was so much more than than an attraction. There was something obviously powerful about him that drew these crowds to him. But as long as you're only part of the crowd and you're not one of the disciples, Jesus is kind of an intriguing sideshow, an intriguing prospect Maybe this man is something. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's crazy. Maybe he has power from God. Maybe he has an evil spirit. In either case, let's draw close and let's spend time listening and watching and seeing what might become of him. Will he be this Messiah that we've been waiting for who will overthrow Roman rule and free Israel once again to be an independent nation? This was their hope in the Messiah. Or would he turn out just like this guy and that guy and the guy before him who all made some attempt to gather crowds together and stir them up into a frenzy and then lead them to Pilate's mansion where he could be overthrown? The crowds were gathered to listen, to observe. But then there were also disciples. When he sat down... His disciples came to him. The crowds were there, but when he sat down, which in first century Jewish tradition, the teacher would sit. He would sit down, and he would open his mouth and teach. 
And all those who wanted to hear would have to come and sit and listen at his feet. So you've got crowds now, if you can imagine the scene on this mountainside, crowds gathered around. There could have been hundreds, there could have been thousands. It doesn't matter. And then you've got disciples, people who know that Jesus is more than a sideshow. They believe that he actually is the Christ, that he's sent by God to deliver them. And as they draw near, he begins to teach. I'm stressing this first verse about crowds and disciples because I want to ask you now to come and sit and hear from the Lord Jesus, believing that he is who he says he is, the Messiah, the Christ, the one that God was sending to save the world. Believe in who he is and come and sit at his feet and listen to what he says as his disciple or as his learner. So verse 2, he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. Now he begins this string of statements that are in a way independent, but obviously very connected. And they're independent because it's statement, different statement, different statement. But they're all connected because there's this idea of blessing. Blessing from God that ties them all together. Now, when we speak about blessing, we come into some very confusing territory in our culture about what it means to be blessed. And honestly, when I say culture, I don't even just mean like uh, Houston or the U.S. or the Bible Belt or something. I, I mean even the church culture. We're, we're a confused people when it comes to what it means to be blessed. Honestly, most people, though I think they would argue this point because they wouldn't want to just come to grips with it, most people, even within the church, see being blessed in the same way as they see being lucky. Being blessed, being lucky, it's almost synonymous when you come down to what it is they would see as a fulfillment of being blessed or being lucky. Now, obviously, as I say that, that's like some 90-grit sandpaper on the ears, isn't it? Like nobody wants to, oh yeah, blessing, luck, basically the same thing. Because I know blessing is something that's very spiritual. It feels very important. And lucky feels kind of, ah, if it happens, it happens. If you get lucky, that's nice. But if you're unlucky, I mean, it's not going to ruin your life. Like people joke all the time, oh, with my luck... With my luck, you know the person who's always like, oh, with my luck, you know, it's like if anything, if there's any, this could happen or that could happen, you all know the person who's like, with my luck, it's always going to go bad. They just feel very unlucky. A blessing and luck are obviously very different, but here's what we think of when we think of being lucky. Circumstances turning in your favor to produce a feeling of ease or convenience, Right? It's just things turning out well, things turning out in an ideal sense. Like this could have happened or that could have happened. Oh, I got lucky. This happened. 
The good thing, the thing that I would rather have happen, ended up being the thing that happened. Now, do you understand why I'm saying most people see being blessed and being lucky as pretty much synonymous? Oh, yeah. Hey, man, how are things going? Oh, I'm blessed, man. I'm blessed. Work's going well. Yeah, uh, man, the grass is doing great this spring. Uh, man, the kids have just been, they just seem like they're in a good season right now. The kid, you know, I have, nothing's broken in the house lately. Yeah, man, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I have a wife. I'm healthy. That kind of stuff. Like, we're talking about circumstances, aren't we? Things. Things that it could have been this or it could have been that. Oh, how nice. It was the thing I would have chosen. Is that really what it means to be blessed? Or is that just circumstantial? Is that things turning out the way we prefer? And is that the definition of blessed? Or can someone be blessed and nothing goes the way they would have planned? Can someone be blessed and, and the thing that they would not have chosen is consistently their reality? Well, in order to really answer that question, we have to get to what the Bible says. We know the Bible can clear up all these things, and Jesus here is being very particular, isn't he, about what it means to be blessed. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And with all of these kind of categories, he's defining what it means to live a life that is blessed. And you notice here that he doesn't give a list of things that just go well for you in life, in your day-to-day -day life. Blessed are you when you are married to a person you enjoy. Blessed are you when your kids are obedient. Blessed are you when you make enough money to be comfortable. He doesn't list any of these circumstantial things. In fact, the one kind of circumstantial thing, the thing that could happen on any given day that he does list, is when people persecute you, when they revile you, when they speak evil about you falsely, lie about you. Well, this does not jive with that kind of circumstantial turn of events that turns out for your favor, the choice you would have made for your own comfort or convenience. Clearly, there is some kind of difference between Jesus' version of blessing and the popular notion of blessing, things turning out well. Honestly, we're normally prone to abandon the idea that we're blessed by God when things don't go well for us. When things are going the way we plan, we, are, we very quickly subscribe to the idea that we are blessed by God. But when things become really difficult, what's our natural reaction? We look towards the heavens, where are you, God? What are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? How could you allow this? As if God is somehow forgetting us or working against us. But then we have 1 Peter 4.12. Do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He goes on to say, but rejoice insofar as you're sharing the sufferings of Christ. So if we shouldn't be surprised by fiery tests, and that's not 
equal to blessing, to avoid fiery trials, fiery tests of our faith, difficulties, sufferings, then what is it? Biblically speaking, it cannot be tied, it cannot be tethered to this idea of convenience. It can't be tied to that. So I'm asking you right now, if you will please take the idea of blessing and you'll just sever it in your mind, in your heart, sever this idea of blessing from things turning out the way you would have planned. Like, a, I mean, a conscious decision. Please join me in making this decision that we are no longer going to define blessing by things went according to my plan. We can't see it that way. If we do, then we'll keep falling into this feeling that God is abandoning us, that He's working against us, that we are not blessed. Even if we are, we won't know we are. So we need a true definition, a biblical definition, a Christian definition of blessing. Who better to look to than Jesus Christ Himself to define what it means to be blessed? Now, I'm going to stop there for just a minute, and I'm going to ask you kind of rhetorically, you can answer if you want to, but does it matter to you whether or not you are blessed by God? Of course, the obvious answer is like, well, yeah, we want to be, don't we? We want to be. Like, honestly, even if I started reading this and I started talking about the definition of blessing, what it is, what it isn't, and you realize, like, man, I'm, I guess I never even thought about it. I've never really thought of a definition of blessing, but I know for sure, even without accurate knowledge of what it means precisely according to Jesus and the entire Bible, what it means to be blessed, I know for sure, I'm telling you right now, I want to be blessed by God. It's good. It's positive. There's, there can't be any harm in being blessed by God. Amen? So we all agree we want this. Whatever this is, we want it. It's good. And we, we should seek it. It's a good and a right desire to be blessed by God. In fact, uh, this is commonly called, the, these verses here between 2 and 12 is called the Beatitudes. You've heard that term before? The Beatitudes. And that word, it, it doesn't mean uh, an attitude of how you should be. The B attitudes. That's not what this is getting at, okay? Uh, it's better than that. Um, and it's a little nerdier than that, actually, although that's, well, that's not nerdy. That's just like dorky. But the real meaning of the word is uh, actually from uh, Latin. It's from the Latin word uh, beatus, beatus, which means blessed or happy. Blessed or happy. And so uh, the, the Latin word here is this, these tudes of happiness or blessedness, this way of being blessed is what Jesus is getting at here. So since Jesus saw, thought that it was so important to right at the outset of his ministry describe what it means to be blessed by God, and because we all know how important it is and how desirable it is to be blessed by God, and because there is no one better you could learn how to define that or measure that or seek that from than God Himself, 
Let's take Jesus' words and seek to understand them. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, or sons and daughters. That's this familial language, and we'll get in more detail there in a minute. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So now if we start at the top of the list, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this poverty of spirit, to be poor in spirit, what does it mean? It means particularly to realize your spiritual need before God. To realize your spiritual need before God. In other words, you have come to the awareness that before a holy God, in terms of holiness, you have none. You're poor. If the currency that we're dealing with is holiness, we're bankrupt. Our account is empty. So we understand our poverty of spirit before God. We're in a position of great need towards Him. We realize our spiritual need before God. And people who realize their spiritual need before God, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He goes on to say those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. This mourning is not just any mourning in general, just to grieve something at all, as though anybody who mourns anything will be comforted. Instead, it means that sadness, that soberness about our own sin and about the consequences of our sin, the brokenness that this world is experiencing because of human rebellion against God's sovereign, benevolent rule. This makes us mourn that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and broke fellowship with God makes us mourn. That human beings are under the judgment and the wrath of God because of their sinfulness against Him makes us mourn. That we were born into this sin. And that we have sinned very much against a holy, wonderful, beautiful God who made us makes us mourn. There's a soberness and a sadness to the soul of those who are aware of God's holiness and our neediness before Him. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Or what does it mean to be meek? Again, another thing where some very popular definitions circulating, some of them good, some of them weird. 
Let's say it like this. To be meek, willing to place others before yourself, not driven by a desire to exalt yourself. There's a gentleness about this person, a patience about this person. They don't feel the need to be lifted up. They're willing to be low. They're willing to be looked over. They're willing to be forgotten. They're willing to have their desires unmet so that another desire could be met. They shall inherit the earth. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's say it like this, that their driving desire in life is to grow in the righteousness of God, to have character like His. They hunger and they thirst for this. I don't mean hunger and thirst the way most of our children describe hunger and thirst. Like you give them lunch and four minutes later they're like, I'm hungry. Not just like want, 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 consume, consume, consume in a selfish way, in a way that's unwarranted, but the way David describes his need for God like a deer pants for water, like a deer that has been wandering through a dry, desolate place, seeking out water to quench its thirst before it collapses in death. We hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, that we'd be made like Him in our character, that we would be right before Him, for Him, because of Him, they shall be satisfied, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus says. When we understand the mercy that we've received from a holy God, mercy by definition is undeserved. And when we really come to grips and embrace this idea of the mercy that we've received from a holy God, we're more ready, more eager to offer mercy to others when they fail, when they violate, when they betray. We don't see ourselves in a position of judgment, but as a position of passing along mercy received. We've all been recipients of grace upon grace, and so we want to be a conduit of that mercy, that grace, passing it on to others so that they could experience the same. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Being pure in heart, according to uh, the biblical mindset, is to have this sincere desire to honor God in all of life from the heart. Sincerity of heart with a desire to honor God. So if you have sin available to you, your honest, sincere desire is not to partake, but instead to abstain and instead honor God. It's genuineness in a desire for holiness. Jesus says, they shall see God. 
Don't you want that? He says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, this isn't just uh, working for any old peace. When, when Jesus says peacemakers, he doesn't mean just those who break up fights. Those who get people to stop being mad at each other. Those who convince people to stop being angry or having grievances. It's much deeper, much richer than that. He's talking about the peace of God, the shalom of God. That this peace would wash over others in our midst. It's really more the peace that comes from mutual submission to Christ. Where two people may be at odds with one another or someone may be at odds with you and in an act of humility towards Christ, you would say, Jesus calls us to more than this. Let's you and I both submit to Him and be at peace because He's deserving of our submission. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And the Greek word here for sons is actually a legal term used in Roman adoption language. These peacemakers are adopted into God's family. They're made part of his family. They're called sons. They're called daughters. God is pleased to make these people his children those who are working to see his peace established through mutual submission to Christ. He says those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake will be blessed. When others revile them and persecute them and utter all kinds of evil lies against them on his account. On his account. You notice the distinction there. I recently saw... Uh, a, a person that I, I have known kind of as an acquaintance in the past. And uh, so, you know, as you do, you become Facebook friends as soon as you meet somebody. And, uh, and he is uh, uh, a self-described progressive Christian, uh, which is to say a Christian who doesn't really believe in the authority of the Bible. And so it's malleable you know, according to culture and these kinds of things. And God is, uh, God is really not God anymore, honestly, and, and I pray for this guy. But he, uh, he recently was um, taking issue with some uh, persecution, as he described it, that some homosexual people were suffering because they were uh, being told that uh, they were sinning in their homosexuality. And he quoted Jesus in his defense of them, saying, blessed are the persecuted. And the homosexual community is obviously very persecuted by people who call themselves Christians because they're being told that their lifestyle is sinful. Well, of course, he disagrees that homosexuality is a sin, I, and I don't understand how he gets there biblically, but this is his belief. And so he believes that the homosexual community is being persecuted when we tell them that they're sinning in their homosexuality and therefore, because they're being persecuted, they will be blessed. 
as he takes exception or takes issue with a criticism of homosexuality, I think it's right, and I think we stand with the scriptures to say that it, we need to take exception and we need to take issue, not just about homosexuality, but in sin in general being celebrated and embraced, even where the Bible contradicts it, and then if somebody is held accountable for the standard that the Bible sets up as Christian, that if that person is held accountable, they're being persecuted. That's clearly not the teaching of Jesus. It's not the teaching of the apostles. Persecution is to suffer for righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake. Suffering because you sin, Peter says, is of no good at all. He says, what good is it if you sin and are beaten for it? But when you suffer for righteousness' sake, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Jesus here is referencing being persecuted on his account. Because you follow him, because your faith's in him, because you're not ashamed of him, because you obey him, you are reviled, you're persecuted, you're lied about. Blessed are you when you experience this kind of persecution. Devotion to Jesus in the midst of opposition and unwillingness to swerve from faith in him, even at great personal cost. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here they all are, poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake, for righteousness sake. All of these things have common ties. More ties, more things that bring them together than I'm sure I know or that I could describe to you. I'm sure that Jesus had so much more in his mind and his heart that he was communicating to his listeners than I even understand at this point in my walk with him. But let's point to two characteristics that all of these Beatitudes share two characteristics, humility and holiness. Do you see a common tie in here? Let's take holiness, first of all. Poor in spirit, what does that have to do with holiness? You realize you don't have any of your own. Those who mourn, what are they mourning? They're mourning their lack of holiness. The meek, what does that have to do with holiness? God is holy, and only God is holy. So who am I to exalt myself? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what does that have to do with holiness? You want it so bad. You want to be like God in the inward parts. You want to struggle and strive and seek to be more like Him in His holiness. The merciful well, what does that have to do with holiness? Because of our lack of holiness, what do we need from God? Mercy. And we've received it. The pure in heart, what does that have to do with holiness? Well, holiness will create purity of heart. When you see the opportunity to sin and you abstain from it for the sake of honoring God instead, that is holy. 
That's being like Jesus. The peacemakers. What does that have to do with holiness? To make peace. Well, if it's about mutual submission to Christ and experiencing peace together because of it, then what we're all seeking for is to be like Jesus, to follow his teaching, to be holy as he is holy. If you and I are both very much like Jesus, then we won't have lack of peace. The more like Jesus we both are, the more peace we'll have with one another. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, what does that have to do with holiness? Well, it's an extreme proper devotion to holiness, that my holiness isn't contingent on my circumstances. I'll be holy as long as it's convenient, as long as it's comfortable, but as soon as I'm opposed, as soon as I'm contradicted, as soon as I'm shamed or looked down upon for my holiness, well, well, then I'll wiggle and maneuver. Well, no, holiness is holiness, and I want to be what holiness is. And if you kill me for my desire for holiness... I still want holiness. It's better than my life. I'd rather have holiness than be alive without it. I told you there were two common threads, at least at this point, I'm recognizing and I think we can focus on this morning. Here's another common thread, humility. Let's run back through our list. Poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to be humble, but not in the way you choose to be humble, but in the way you just recognize reality. Has God ever put you in that position before? Where you weren't seeking to be humble, he just made you that way? Like, if I'm not humble right now, then I am just a lunatic. I'm just not paying attention. I'm just staring at the ground. But if I pick my eyes up and I look around at my reality, my weakness, my frailty, my inability to bring myself to God, to be everything He's called me to be, I just am humbled. That's this poverty of spirit, recognizing your need before God. You are a humble person because you recognize your need. It's your reality that you live in. Those who mourn, this sadness, this soberness of heart that comes about our sin and its consequences. It's a very humbling thing to just recognize and deal with the tragedy of your sin. To recognize your sinfulness to the point of mourning is a very humbling thing. And you recognize it when you start hearing the language of people who've been humbled to the point of mourning, they don't stop talking about that. Their sin is always before them. They're always seeking to overcome it, to grow, to grow past it. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was mourning the consequences of sin. He didn't have any sin of his own. But as he looked at the world, he mourned sin. Meekness is humility because meekness says, I'm going to actually partake in the decision to be humble. 
I just have been humbled by God, but now I'm embracing that and I want to partake in that and I want to humble myself. You first. You first. If it's going to be about me or it's going to be about you, let it be about you. Let it be about you. I don't need recognition. I don't need attention. God has humbled me and I'm embracing that now. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are in a state of humility because, again, in their poverty of spirit and in their meekness and in their mourning, they've come to recognize that they will not gain righteousness of their own deeds. They cannot be righteous before God without Christ's righteousness being credited to them. They need a third-party righteousness. They hunger and thirst for this righteousness but they're in a state of dependence always for it. The merciful, of course, the merciful are in a state of humility because they realize how much mercy they've received and they're not sitting in the seat of a judge. The pure in heart, their humility is their genuineness, their desire to honor God and not themselves. Peacemakers. You see the humility of peacemakers and that they, their highest goal is not to win. Their highest goal is not to win. It's that Jesus would be glorified. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, on Jesus' account, your humility is seen and that you are exalting Jesus and his name and his kingdom and his authority above yourself. To be persecuted willingly is an act of humble submission. Now, what does this have to do with being blessed? We've taken the time to try to understand what it is Jesus is describing, these characteristics that he's describing. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted willingly for Jesus' sake. This is a kind of person. You understand, Jesus is describing characteristics that he's telling us to seek He's telling us to desire, to take hold of, to ask God for. This is a kind of person. And when we are this kind of person, in all of its different facets, we will be blessed. When you're poor in spirit, Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven belongs to people who are poor in spirit. These are the kinds of people who are the citizens of God's kingdom. Those who mourn in the way Jesus is describing mourning, the way Jesus mourns over the sin of the world and brokenness, they shall be comforted because they will enter into the rest of Christ. And a day will come when there will be no more mourning. 
God will wipe away every tear. Sin will be no more. Death will be no more. And all of life will be our comfort. Those who mourn sin now to the point of grieving and repenting, they will be comforted. The meek shall inherit the earth. When Jesus comes back and remakes everything, there's a new heavens and a new earth and all of it belongs to Him. Those who have been meek, who have said, No, you, Lord, your name, your renown, your glory, they will inherit this new creation to live in it with the Lord. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, listen, their blessing is that they will be satisfied. Not satisfied in all the ways that we could define satisfaction, not in the ways that in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, we seek to be satisfied, but that as we seek, as we hunger and thirst and, and chase after the righteousness of God, there will come a day when that hunger, that thirst will be fully satisfied. We will be like Him. All of our sin will be eradicated. All of our weakness, our failure, our limitation will be a thing of the past. And we will be actually forever holy with God. The merciful will receive the blessing of receiving mercy. There's a point where Jesus told his disciples, if you refuse to forgive others, God will not forgive you. Now, in the context of Christendom, of those people who follow Christ, their faith is in him, I don't even understand Jesus' theology behind all of that. How is it that you can have faith in Christ and therefore receive forgiveness, but in some way, if you refuse to forgive others, God won't forgive you? I don't know. But here's what I do know. I desperately want the forgiveness, the mercy of God. And those who give mercy will receive mercy. Those who have been forgiven are called to forgive. And it will be their blessing to receive that mercy. The pure in heart will be blessed by seeing God, being with Him forever. This sincerity of coming to God with a pure heart wanting His glory, wanting His fame, His exaltation, His worship, these people will come face to face with God, not in terror, but in peace, being received by Him to be with Him forever. The peacemakers will be adopted. They'll be made children of God. They'll be brought near and they'll be spoken to and treated tenderly. Because God loves them and God has invested in them and what's good for them is now good for God. What's bad for them is bad for God. We become family with Him. The blessing of those who are persecuted is that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It cannot be taken from them. 
Persecution is about trying to scare you out of your beliefs, about trying to tear something out of your hands that you've believed in, that you've lived for. Jesus says, you hang on to him, the kingdom cannot be taken from you. Now, as we've described this kind of person and the great blessings that they're going to receive, you understand that these blessings are not temporary kind of conveniences and comforts in this life. Where the talk of blessing so much in the church is about what God will give you in return for your faithfulness to Him in this life. Let me just change the course of that conversation, please. We expect nothing from this world. It has nothing to offer us. It has nothing good that we want. Everything in this world compared to a moment of satisfaction in God is all like nothing. Take the whole thing if you want it. You can have it. But if we have Christ, we have everything. Everything. These blessings that Jesus is talking about, it's about humbly submitting ourselves for a desire to be holy as God is holy, for the glory of His name. And if this is the pursuit of our life, we will be blessed in all the ways God seeks to bless His children. We'll experience some of that or all of that in some way, in part, during this lifetime, but not in the complete way that Jesus is really getting at here. We're seeking a future kingdom, a future home, a future blessing to be with Him, to be like Him, to glorify Him purely, peacefully, forever, because of his mercy toward us. And now, what we have to say about these characteristics of this person who is seeking the blessings of God, is that this person, really when it comes down to it, is seeking to be like Jesus in all the ways that he is himself. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider his equality with God a thing to be held on to, but instead he emptied himself, came into this world, became obedient to the Father's will to the point of death on a cross. This Jesus, who was exalted from eternity past, who is the Creator, who is the Majesty on high, He became poor. He mourned. He became meek. He sought to give his righteousness to us. He shows mercy to us. He is pure in heart always. He is the ultimate peacemaker who brings a holy God and an unholy people together by his own blood. And he was in the most ultimate way persecuted for righteousness' sake. Persecuted so that his righteousness could be given to sinners as a gift through their faith in him. So we're looking to Jesus here. He's describing himself, describing what it's like to live a life like him. 
And when we do that, he says, we are the salt of the earth. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste or its saltiness, your Bible may say, if, if being like Jesus is this flavor of salt, but you lose your saltiness, you lose your taste, you lose your Christ-likeness, the thing that gives you your flavor, the, the taste that people experience when they get to know you, then how is that restored? You're not good for anything now except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The aim of our life is Christ-likeness for the glory of Christ. And when we make the aim of our life some other goal, what are we good for? If we're seeking to exalt ourselves, comfort ourselves, what are we good for? But he says, you are the salt of the earth. It's a decision that he's made about his disciples. In this, in this desire to progressively become more and more salty, more and more like Jesus, more and more carrying his flavor into the world, we know that we're going to fail, we're going to fall, but we are the salt of the earth by Jesus' own decision He'll be faithful to use us, to reveal himself through us. Look at verse 14. He says it another way. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, these two analogies that he's giving, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. What, this, what Jesus is getting at here is when you seek to follow my teaching and be like me, you're going to emit a certain taste, a certain flavor, and a certain light to the world around you that is going to reveal Jesus to them. It's going to reveal who God is, his character, his nature. It's going to reveal his righteousness. It's going to reveal his disdain for sin. It's going to reveal, reveal how he mourns over our sinfulness. It's going to reveal his desire to lift us to a place of holiness, of righteousness in Christ. Reveals his mercy for sinners. Reveals his purity of heart. His constant holiness. His desire to make peace. And our devotion, even in the midst of severe persecution, to our Jesus reveals the worthiness of Jesus to the world. That we would be willing to suffer. If you take the gospel message and you remove all the suffering of the apostles and the early church and all of our brothers and sisters who've gone before us, then the world could look at us and say, well, yeah, I mean, as long as everything's going great, it sounds like good news, but as soon as things fall apart, but for us to be willing to suffer deeply, for us to be willing to lose in this life so that we could have Christ's victory in the life to come, 
shows the eternality, the eternal significance of what it is we're preaching to the world. What Christ is calling his disciples here to is devotion to him for the sake of his glory on a daily, heartfelt basis. That we would sincerely wake up every morning seeking to honor God, to be like God, to glorify God in the most inward parts of who we are, not just outwardly, but that this outward emission of saltiness, of light, would be the flow of what's coming from our hearts. Christ has embodied this teaching in his life, his ministry, his death on the cross, and he has established it for us through his resurrection. We know this is the truth. We know that this is the way to receive blessing from God. So then we basically just have a question to ask ourselves at the end of this study, this pursuit of knowledge from Christ. Do we want to use this life, this set of years, however many we get, do we want to spend that on some form of blessing that the world has defined for us, that we know has an expiration date at our death, which may be very comfortable and very convenient during those days, or would we rather, rather devote ourselves to receiving a blessing that may not feel comfortable or convenient in this lifetime, but we know for eternity will be blessing as defined by God himself. I want that one. If I could just be a person in a room full of people with you, I want that one. I choose whatever God says is a blessing, that. Amen? But the hard part is that uh, the sun's going to go down and you're going to go to sleep and then you and I are going to wake up in the morning and this is still going to be in the Bible and Jesus will still be who he is and blessing will still be what blessing is as defined by God, but will we be pursuing it? Will we be devoted? Will we be mindful? Will we be poor in spirit? Will we mourn our sin? Will we be meek? Will we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Stop with me for a moment. Take any average day that you live and whatever was driving you in that day, if you could replace that desire with a hunger and thirst for righteousness, how would that day be different? I'll just leave that there for you. Will we wake up tomorrow and choose to be, seek to be merciful? Will we genuinely, sincerely, from a pure heart, seek God? Will we seek to make peace 
bringing mutual submission to Christ as the goal of all of our relationships. And in our seeking to honor God, to trust Christ, to proclaim Christ, to give the taste of Christ, to shine the light of Christ when the opposition comes. Will we seek the greater blessing or will we seek the false blessing? I hope that we will rejoice and be glad for the reward that will be great in heaven. If you are anything like me, and I think you are because we're all normal, sinful people looking to God, I read this list and I know who Jesus is and I see myself and it makes me start to mourn. It makes me start to mourn because I'm not as much like him as he deserves. And I don't regret the morning. I know I'll be comforted. I hope I'll receive some comfort in this life that the comfort would be my sanctification. That I would be made more like him than I am now and receive some comfort from that. Looking forward to the great comfort beyond this life. But I hope that you will, at the, at the risk of being a downer, I hope that you would be able to join me in a hopeful kind of mourning for how we're not like Christ. But that we wouldn't grieve as the world grieves, but we would have a godly grief that leads to repentance. Because there's hope when we repent of our sin toward the God who really is who He is. That we'll be accepted, received, forgiven, sanctified, made more like Christ, blessed, blessed by God to give his taste to shine his light let's seek him for that as we hunger and thirst for it in prayer